This is the GoFungal Podcast. Today we're talking to a guy who ran a few of Obama's Twitter accounts about civil discourse online, why it's so hard, and how leaders can share their voice online. Let's do it. Caleb Gardner is an innovation strategist and change management expert. You have kids, Caleb. What do you tell your kids that you do? I do. I have three kids, so um, we have quite the chaotic household. And um, honestly, I can't even explain to my wife what I do, much less my kids. I think the best explanation that I've heard, I think this is my nine-year-old. He said he he helps businesses uh, understand how to use the internet better because the internet is terrible, I think is how he, is how he put it. Does he believe the internet's <laughs> terrible? He takes some language from my teenager, like cynical teenager language about how things are bad out there. I don't know if he really gets, um, you know, what he's saying. So I, yeah. I always want to know, you always want to stay hip, but what do the kids think about the internet these days? Because my oldest, my, my teenager is hardcore Gen Z in that he's just embracing the nihilism for what it is and <laughs> just not trying to care about anything, I guess. Well, I want to have you on because you're an interesting guy. And then you also have a book that just came out, No Point B. Yep. You talk a lot about civil discourse online and as well as corporate social responsibility issues because you, you led digital strategy for Obama. That's right. For uh, Obama's political advocacy group. So for all the uh, Barack Obama accounts for almost yeah. four years. It feels both very recent and a long time ago. It's like very not that long ago because it feels so monumental in terms of part of my career and my life. And it's been so formative. You're basically running the Twitter accounts, right? And you're managing those accounts and you're managing comments and responding and stuff like that. Yeah, we didn't have to do a lot of responding. I think this is the benefit of working in a political environment where you're managing the accounts of the most powerful man in the world is that any kind of response is seen as a response from him, which means that he really just stays above the fray in terms of the day-to-day -day political back and forth on Twitter. You had to have had trolls. And people oh, yeah. saying some pretty terrible things. Probably the, you probably had to have seen the, the most extreme ends of that that anybody could imagine. 100%. When you're managing any kind of community at scale, you get a bell curve of people who engage. So you've got people who really love the brand, and you've got people who really hate the brand. But most of the people who engage are somewhere in between that. Do you have any like moments, though, that really stick out or like comments that stick out as like the ultimate haters where you're just like... <laughs> this is crazy. This is actually insane. Too. There was some stuff that was weirdly sexual, I would say. That was the most surprising thing. So it was like people saying some weird things. It's like the bottom of the barrel of the internet were the people who respond to the president. It was very strange. I would think that it would be easier to be a, a strategist for Obama in Twitter compared to being like Trump's strategist. I think that Trump's team was driven mostly by him, for one thing. Like, I think that he just had a lot more things he wanted to say, for better or for worse, on Twitter every day, whereas a president trusted his team to manage that for him. Civil discourse in general, just like how we behave online, I think about people who are listening who might be head of marketing. They're, it's a, a big part of something that's on part of their brain share is just like, it's a scary place. I'll tell you about my journey. Like I was very optimistic about the effects of the internet and all of this kind of 
positive social movement we saw when we empowered people and we gave them the most powerful communication devices ever known to man. And we really put power back in the people's hands to say what they wanted out of their governments and the companies and products and services they bought. And I think the thing that I was naive about was that a lot of really terrible people also used that same organizing power. A lot of the people who hadn't had the chance to connect with other people who believed false things like they believed got the chance to organize. And in certain cases, like with Facebook groups, were prompted to organize by the algorithm itself. So I think that Come 2015, 2016, we started seeing the effects on the election. That was when there was a big wake-up call to, oh, the tech that we have integrated into our lives so closely actually isn't necessarily neutral. It's actually negative and harmful in lots of ways that it Mm. built into the system. And in order to build a more civil internet, we need more digital media literacy as individuals. We need to build it into our education system. We need people who understand how to interpret the information that they get online But we are in this like generational divide, right? Me being an exennial or a geriatric millennial or however you call it (laughs) was the last generation who grew up before the internet, but then was also affected by the internet. I think it gives us a certain perspective about digital literacy that let's say our parents or our grandparents don't do. Those are still the people dominating voting in lots of parts of the country. They're still the people like trying to figure out the internet for themselves without a lot of guidance. So we're in this dissonance between, I think, the a digitally native up and coming generation and an older generation that is still trying to wrap their heads around what it means and being influenced in positive and negative ways by it. We just need more people who understand how to interpret information on the internet. The other is we need more government regulation. I think that's coming. I think we've seen fits and starts of that. It's really being driven more in Europe, I think, right now. And then the last thing is we just need the companies themselves to be smarter about this. We need employees within the companies really pushing for them to be critical and smart, ethical thinkers. We need innovation around the business model of the internet itself. And so much of it is driven by this engagement, eyeballs, focus. Can we get users to to be on our site and engage with our site so that we can sell advertising to them. There's just, there's a lot of business model innovation that I think the internet is primed for. I'm thinking about now how employees interact with their own company's brand. And I work with helping a lot of my clients get their message out through content on social media. And sometimes employees are a part of doing that. But then you get into this sort of scared place where leaders are really afraid of how they're gonna behave online or they yeah. represent their brand or if somebody doesn't agree with like a social stance, for example, is there a conversation happening around that at all right now that you're involved in? I don't know that anyone has found the magical answer to how do we create employee advocacy, create influencers within the company, but then also moderate what they say. I think part of it is hiring the right people and trusting them. The crazy thing about that is you really can't say anything if you have a really strong opinion without risking your job and maybe maybe even your reputation when you're at a certain level. And I don't know, there's just something a little strange about that. Yes, there is. Dangerous about that. The mob mentality. Yeah, I think that we still haven't reconciled what it means to live our lives in public. Like I, I write about this in the book, actually, that we are both called to speak out about issues of injustice that we see. And I think that 
my point of view is that it that is an ethical consideration that we should all think about, which is that we have these amazing platforms and these voices that we can use. And how are we going to use those to positive ends and to make the world better? And if we choose not to use them, that there's no ethical trade-offs there to unplug and not use our voices. Do you view that as a negative thing or is that just a decision that people make? Like, it's a decision that people have to make. I think that if we all did it, we would be ceding ground to some of the powers we talked about earlier about people organizing in all kinds of negative ways. We all need to like realize what a important decision it is to make to engage or not engage or be plugged in or not be plugged in. It's so much harder now, obviously, than it ever was because we are so connected. So it's almost like people are waiting for that What's your stance on this and Mr. CEO or leader or whoever it is? And the reality is you might not actually want to engage in every single possible conflict in the world. You know what? I have an opinion about this, but I also don't feel like I want to go out there and pick a side because, you know, when we get political, it's like really only two sides of the coin sometimes. It's unnuanced. I think that's part of the reconciling the media environment and the political environment that we're in that the internet is connected is that we are both called to engage and the debates are very unnuanced and very tribal and and politicized in so many ways we also don't really like understand the power dynamics and the differences between who we're calling out like there is no nuance between like the internet calling out someone with a hundred twitter followers with jeff bezos we treat it the same it, it is a very hard environment to to strategically operate in as a CEO with that in mind, because you are someone with more power, more responsibility, more of a platform. It takes more nuance and more more thought around how you govern what you're going to lean into. You know, if you're talking to people in as CEOs or CMOs are in these kind of leadership positions as they're thinking about either where they want their CEO to lean into. It's helpful for me to give context around what matters to your employees, what matters to your customers, what's a part of your supply chain or like a core part of your business. Like there are workflows that we can create and we have created that help you decide, is this something that is mission critical to us? Or is this something we can actually lean out of and let the conversation happen without us? And so it's okay to not be involved in every single conversation. It's not only okay, I think it's not possible to be involved in every conversation. (laughs) It's just a matter of what we what usually happens is that we let the crisis happen. And then we have our own internal crisis about Oh, God, are we going to lean in here instead of thinking through that ahead of time and trying to have some workflows that that help you decide in the moment and not actually cause all of this organizational anxiety? To give this a headline a little bit here, like should companies take a public stand on issues of politics like abortion or covid? I know they're different, very different, but those are some of the big ones that it seems like people are waiting for, like, you you know, whose side you on here? I think we just have to operate on principle about right. where we're going to lean in versus being worried about something being political or not. Because I think when it feels authentic, when we've leaned in, when we've made a stand, I think we get rewarded for that. It's weird because in a lot of ways, social, if we're talking about social media as an example, it is a conversation, but yet we don't really have the leeway of treating it like we're in the same room with people talking face to face. And there isn't this sort of connection or, or, or even forgiveness if you were to say a word that might trigger something in someone else. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not the same thing in so many ways. You have to be way more 
you have to have a strategist and you have to think about what are the words we're going to use and you have to move yep. the words around and you have to think about it. So it's so weird. It's very hard to make those kinds of decisions in real time. Either you're going to do something slow, which means think about it ahead of time with the right people in the room, or if you're trying to do it fast, you need a lot of resources and a lot of people who understand the kind of environment you're operating in, not like a corporate boardroom with a bunch of lawyers, like digital strategists, internet people, like who, internet people, you understand what I'm saying, <laughs> who understand like internet, internet culture. People. Like, I think that's an essential thing. It reminds me of that issue uh, a few years ago where United kicked someone off a flight and people got video of it. And then the yeah. CEO's response basically made the issue worse because it came from this very boardroom driven press release and then tweeted out the press release. And I was like, Oh, God, if you had just said, we saw the video, it was awful, we'll get to the bottom of it, period, they would have bought themselves some time. That's why it seems like it's clear that it was like a boardroom statement that that's probably what it feels like. I'm on the pulpit. What's your statement, sir? And that's maybe a traditional way of issuing yeah. a response. Like you can, you can show empathy and you can respond in a way that feels human, but you don't have to take responsibility for anything yet. Especially when, again, going back to the operating from principles, it affects your employees. It affects your supply chain and your core business. It affects your customers. One of the things that's on my mind too, is a lot of companies that I work with, they aren't the Coca-Colas. Some of them are B2B companies that are a part of the supply chain, but they're not out front in the consumer world as much. It's an e a little easier in some cases to sort of not engage as much because there's less expectations. You think the same applies in terms of you still need to be involved in those, those issues? It's not necessarily they don't need to be involved, but I think what we've seen is that trends in the B2C industry tend to hit the B2B industry, just they take a little bit longer. We might not be doing B2C, but what do our customers care about? Who are our customers? Like, what are they asking for? What do our employees care about? What are This is where the B2C world and the B2B world tend to blend in is that if you're employees of a B2C company or a B2B company, you're still usually hearing the same things out in the market. And you're caring about things like inclusion. I think about like manufacturing companies, you've got plants in rural areas, you've got corporate headquarters in a city, for example, but sometimes there seems to be a pretty dramatic 50-50 sort of separation in, if you talk about politics, like stances, for example, or sure. as COVID became a political thing. I mean, disappointingly, things tend to become politicized and then it becomes black or white in ways that it should continue to be nuanced. But. What would you say to a leader who's concerned about, like, I have an opinion, I think we should say this, but you know, I, I'm going to alienate 50% of the workforce. I think that's where we go back to saying we have to operate from principles. It's not political, like it's principles, not politics. That's great. It needs to be based on what are our company's values? What do we believe in? How do we want to present ourselves in the world? I would say that most core values that a company claims, if you start extrapolating them into the real world, they're going to get political really quickly. Avoiding politics mm -hmm. is a fear-based position. Like we have to operate boldly with what we care about and take principled stands. I think ultimately we have to figure out how to, in a nuanced and a strategic way, lean into those issues because leaning out of them is going to be a precarious place to be. I have a question for you. Is ESG bullshit? like Elon <laughs> thinks. It's in its infancy. That's what I would say is it feels so if you are in a position like I am, and it sounds like in a position like you are where 
every company is scrambling to figure out what its ESG strategy is. Actually, maybe um, we should just in case somebody's listening to this is, yeah, I know what ESG is. Yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what is it? It stands for environmental, social, and governance. It's basically the way that the financial sector is starting to think about the environmental and social impacts of a company's footprint and trying to use the instruments of the financial sector to take that into consideration for investments. And I know um, that's a big part of even RFP processes, like request for proposals. It is. You're going to have a quarter of your stuff is going to be, do you align Tell us about your carbon footprint. Yeah, right. totally. So it's something that every, I think every size of company is going to start having to consider like documenting and reporting that stuff. But is it in certain ways immature? I think absolutely. I think we are still figuring out what our standards are around how we measure net zero carbon impact. I think that the investors who are looking way into the future and not just the next quarter are looking more at ESG types of metrics. This is about getting like reporting this out to the world and being held accountable. Have you seen companies doing this well in terms of how they're getting their message out? A lot of these efforts have existed for a long time. You've had environmental sustainability teams, you've had uh, CSR, social impact type teams, DEI initiatives. Of course, you've had like things going on the governance side. The ones who are doing it well are really looking at that across the board and trying to integrate those efforts under the ESG um umbrella and look at it both from a data standpoint about how do we do reporting well, but also just trying to coordinate the efforts a little bit more to be more effective across the board. It, it feels more authentic than just we're reducing our carbon footprint over here, but also don't pay no attention to the man behind the curtain when it comes to the S. You know, I think about from a practical standpoint, people that are trying to find the right way to share the story, put it into content or put it on social. Any tips for people trying to figure out how should I be engaging in social in this or as a company? ESG is coming on the heels of a lot of critiques around greenwashing, around like, us talking about the environmental impacts of our products in ways that didn't feel authentic. But if you think about doing ESG, it shouldn't start with marketing. I think that's the important part. Coming from a genuine place, like as a brand leader, as a CMO, you realize that this is a differentiator and you want to be working for a company that is doing good. And so any little positive movement in that front, you want to be able to talk about it externally. I think one of mm -hmm. the things that marketers should think about is it, we don't have to just report out here are our goals and that's that. Sometimes it's like, let me show you something that we're working on and we're really proud of this thing and we think it's gonna make a big impact when we're like hearing stories of these different people and work that's being done, conversations that are being had along the yeah. way, the work that's happening to actually achieve those goals. I'm interested in helping people figure out, okay, great, you're doing this stuff and now how do we share this progress with the world that isn't yeah. just boring numbers? If you can back that up with something that is authentic, with efforts that don't feel like they're just greenwashing and that they feel more coordinated. And that honestly, it's something that's not just brand marketing, but it's coming from the CEO. It's coming from other parts of the organization. It can be really powerful. I wanna make sure we get the book in there. No point B, rules for leading change in the new hyper-connected radically conscious economy. What are, we gonna, right. what are we gonna learn? When we read it, we've danced around a lot of the themes of the book, honestly, like I talk about the effects of the internet on our ability to make change, both positive and negative. I talk about building adaptive capability into our organization so we can adapt to an ever changing world that is facing not only technological pressure, but social and political pressure. I like to think that it's is applicable for leaders within organizations. It's also applicable for individuals who want to be change makers in their companies and without. 
I don't think we have any choice but to be leaning into multiple possible futures, trying to figure out as best we can different directions, making investments on multiple horizons, but then also one of the reasons why we talk a lot about change management is there's too much going on and too much happening to us and we need to like help our people be adaptable in their thinking more often. For sure. And let it, and empowering them to be able to act on their own. Yep. Empowering them with budget, with decision-making power, with being part of their job responsibilities. It's in ways that are tangible and meaningful for them to be able to make change within the organization. I have to ask you one last thing is what's your favorite Deftones song? <laughs> How did you know I was a Deftones fan? Because I saw a post on Instagram that you went to a Deftones co concert and I was there. Oh, where are you? Oh, that's super fun. Yeah, are you like fun. a hardcore Deftones fan? Or are you just, I like that kind of music? They were one of my favorite bands when I was in high school and I've just followed their, their album releases ever since. And it's fun to headbang to metal every time they release an album. Not to make this a Deftones fan podcast, but I'm more than willing to Maybe to we should make that. this a Deftones Maybe we fan should. podcast. It'd be like, the, hey, the riches are in the niches. Like we'd probably <laughs> be the biggest, the number one Deftones podcast. I don't know. If there's yeah. Others. I think they've been more creative, more innovative than a lot of metal bands. I think that's why they've been so successful over the years. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah. Caleb, thank you so much for your time. And for those who are listening, where can they pick up the book? It's on my website, calebgardner.com. I'm at Caleb Gardner anywhere around the web. So it's pretty easy to find me, but definitely all the book info is on the site. I know it's going to be good because you're a good storyteller. Thanks so much. Awesome, Caleb. Thank you.